Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 164, Madness. Now then, where were we with the story before we wandered off on the historiography thing? We were, I believe, in 1451, or 1451 in England anyway. We'd nipped across the Channel to Castillon to watch the grand old Earl of Salisbury fall before the guns of the French and take with him England's last hope of regaining Gascony. But meanwhile, back in Blighty, Richard of York had retired to his estates in Wales at Ludlow, feeling grumpy and disenfranchised. Now this was a problem for Somerset and Henry, whether they realised it or not. They were probably just pleased to see the back of him. But now they had a choice. They could bring York firmly to heel, or find a way to engage him and bring him back inside the tent. While they deliberated this vexed question, if indeed they did deliberate, York gave them a little nudge towards one side of the options in September 1451 by sallying out from his castle at Ludlow, ostensibly to do his duty. To explain, let us travel down to the far southwest of England to Devon, which is another good example of the kind of intermagnate grief that was causing violence and instability all over Henry's kingdom. Down in Devon, you'd always had three main players. You've got the king, who is Duke of Cornwall, which has traditionally been a royal honour. Then you have the Courtenays and the Bonvilles. The Courtenays were Earls of Devon. The Earls of Devon haven't really troubled these pages since being first created in the 12th century. Essentially, the beaches down there are lovely. In fact, everything about Devon is lovely, but it's a long way from Westminster. The current Courtney Earl of Devon was married to a Beaufort. They get everywhere, don't they? Like a rash. 
Down in Devon, it had always been clear who was boss, the Earls of Devon. And one of their most helpful partners were the Bonville family, who knew the side on which their bread was buttered and supported the top dog accordingly. But, by the 1400s actually, the Bonvilles had done rather better than was comfortable. Now their income at £900 a year was pretty much the same as the Courtney's. Still, they got along okay for a little while, though with the odd growl from the Bonville dog, who no longer thought of himself as quite so beta as he might once have done. And then, in 1437, national politics make the mistake of blowing the whole thing up. The King appointed William Bonville as the Royal Steward of Cornwall. Well, you should have heard the language in the Courtney household. The air was blue. That had always, always been the preserve of the Courtney's. Who did these jumped-up nobodies the Bonvilles think they were? And so the Courtney's lobbied. And then, in a delightful example of incompetence, Henry tried to soothe Devon by giving him a job as well, called the Steward of the Duchy of Cornwall. Steward of the Duchy of Cornwall, Royal Steward of Cornwall. Well, nobody could see the difference between the two jobs, and so Bonville and Devon went to war. From now on, they're looking for allies, allies at court with the clout to help them with their local struggle for power. And in return, their local struggle for power would have an impact on national politics. In 1450 and 1451, the dispute flared up into violence. On one side, Thomas Courtney had gathered his supporters. On the other, James Butler, Earl of Wiltshire and Ormond, had joined the Bonville cause. But Courtney had decided that it was time for the old dog to assert himself and give the young pup a nip of the ear to keep him in line. So he gathered his retainers, called out his loyal tenants and marched across Devon and Somerset to attack Wiltshire. As he marched, churchmen as august as the Bishop of Bath and Wells rushed out like a cloud of butterflies to persuade him to put away the sword and pick up the pipe of peace. Courtney brushed them aside and kept marching implacably on to the Earl of Wiltshire's place at Lackham. In Lackham, the Earl of Wiltshire was struggling to control his bowels. James Butler was in fact enormously powerful in Ireland as the Earl of Ormond, but in Wiltshire he was a tiddler. So, when a summons from Henry happened to arrive in the mailbox, Wiltshire seized it with relief and legged it to Henry's side, pleading obedience. Courtney, finding the bird flown, sacked the place and having done that, turned back to besiege the arch-enemy Bonville, in Taunton. Now really, you can't have that sort of thing going on. It really isn't acceptable for lords to be taking the law into their own hands and beating each other up. Now Richard of York had consistently presented himself as being on the side of good governance, a loyal servant of the king in helping him bring back said good governance. So now York intervened and descended on Taunton with fire and sword and 2,000 retainers in all his glory. He demanded the attendance of Bonville, Wiltshire and Courtney and then banged their heads together and forced them to come to terms. No doubt, as they took their oaths, everyone had their fingers crossed and heartily wished they could get on with the scrap. But the sight of York's 2,000 hairy retainers 
fingering the edges of their knives, made them grit their teeth and share the kiss of peace. Now, Somerset and Henry could look at this in two ways. On the one hand, York appears to have acted in the best interests of everyone to re-establish peace. And he was, after all, a senior member of the Justices of the Peace for Somerset. But on the other hand, who did he think he was? It was the King's job to keep the peace, and Henry had had no discussion with York about what he was going to do. Somerset knew that York's decisive action would build his reputation as the antidote to the poor royal governance they were getting from the king. So, they could gratefully accept the heir presumptive's help and maybe even use it as a chance to bring him inside the royal circle. Or, it could be time to sit on York, sit on him hard and make sure he was painfully aware of his place and that he'd stepped out of it. This was a key moment. In a sense, maybe it's here where the Wars of the Roses begins or becomes inevitable. Because Somerset persuaded the vacillating Henry to be uncompromising. All the combatants were treated in exactly the same way. Courtney, Bonville, Wiltshire and York. All were summoned before the King's Council to answer for their action. The message to York was clear. He was not to be seen as an official, oh no. He was not to be seen as a representative of the state. He was to be treated purely as just one more private subject who'd broken the rules and overstepped his authority. Somerset would have been well aware of what was at stake here and the consequences of his approach. And he called in the major magnates around to back him up. The Earl of Salisbury, Humphrey Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham, were with the King as he presided over the council at Coventry. While Wiltshire and Bonville all suffered a month's confinement, York and Courtney simply refused to turn up. And no matter how many times they received summons, York stayed firmly at Ludlow and Courtney stayed firmly in Devon. Somerset had effectively forced York's hand. Now, obviously, we have no primary source that describes York's state of mind now or at any time, actually. But let's have a guess. His archenemy is currently sitting in his chair at the right-hand side of the king, which is where he, York, the heir presumptive, ought to be, i.e. Edmund Poxy, ooh, please don't dirty my shiny suit of armour, Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset. York has yet again taken perfectly responsible action for the good of the realm and has been carpeted as a result. And let's not forget, this weak and feeble king, now clearly the pawn of the hated Somerset, is the son of the very man who had had York's father executed. So it could well be here that the small piece of straw descends onto the camel's back, where the need for nine stitches becomes inevitable, where the drinker sauntered out from the last chance saloon into the dark outside. York was now probably unreconcilable. And Somerset and the King couldn't afford to have a subject that ignored royal summons. Somerset's aim now was to humiliate York and bring him to heel. But, as I'm sure you are all aware, there is more than one way of skinning a cat. Though I'm also not sure why he'd want to do such a horrid thing. So he didn't go head on. He went for the legs. York's great ally, the man who had encouraged that great shout in Parliament for York, was William Oldhall. Oldhall 
knew he was in trouble and had fled to sanctuary at the Chapel of St Martin's in London. But on the 28th of January 1452, 400 men-at-arms appeared in the church and dragged Old Hall out and chucked him into jail. It was enough. Somerset must have been well aware that York could not let such an insult to his honour and such a flouting of his authority and influence to go unchallenged. York had tried at Parliament with Mowbray to challenge the power of Somerset and failed. Now he was going to take more direct action. Declaring his undying loyalty to the King, York issued an open manifesto at Ludlow, blaming the King's evil councillors. And by February 1452 he was on the march towards London to force the King to listen to him. York shows throughout his career a certain lack of judgment, I think. Attempting to win Parliament round as he'd done in 1450 was pretty brass-necked. But making the King remove his ministers by armed force, well, that's something in quite a different league. York was taking a big risk. But 10 out of 10 for bravery anyway. As he came, York tried to raise support. Now one quite novel feature of the Wars of the Roses is that big strand of populism i.e. the attempt of the participants to whip up support, particularly from the towns and the gentry. I mean, really, magnates didn't normally bother. I mean, who are these little people, darling? And where's that wretched servant with my G&T? Gloucester had made himself deeply unpopular with his peers by his rabble-rousing, and York, it transpires, was rather made from the same mould. And it makes sense, actually. Parliament was increasingly important in the political affairs of the state, and therefore its voters were courted. And plus, York had a legitimacy problem. The more support he could get, the better. And he consistently failed to win a majority of peers and magnates. So, York wrote letters to major towns to drum up support. And we know this because a few have survived. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, Richard of York does not hold back in having a go at Somerset. Really, Somerset's mum must have been livid. Actually, Somerset's mum was six feet under, but never mind, she would have been turning in her grave. Basically, the message is that all the ills of the world are down to Somerset. While he, York, is good, pure, true, only concerned with the common wheel and damnably good-looking to boot. York ended up at Dartford in Kent, southeast of London, with a mighty impressive army of his extensive tenantry, supported by an impressive artillery train. At his side was Courtney, trying to look butch and manly. Across the way in Blackheath was the King, and pretty much every other magnate of any relevance and importance. The relative sizes of the armies mattered not one whit. It was in chocolate teapot territory because York knew he could not win. No one could win without the hearts and minds at least of a significant part of the baronage. And at this point, as far as the baronage was concerned, the king said Somerset was the man. And if that's what the king says, that's good enough for me. The king might be a plonker, but if we start calling kings plonkers publicly, where will it all end? And what alternative do we have? There followed two days of negotiation, York trying to persuade Henry and the assembled lords that Somerset was an evil little tick who needed to be squished between finger and thumb, while Somerset sat at Henry's shoulder and sneered. 
Seriously, if this was a poker game, you'd smile sweetly, fold and save what you could of your pride for the next hand. True to his popular strategy, York would subsequently circulate rumours that in what followed he was tricked, that he was convinced by the king that Somerset would be removed if he disarmed. But seriously, I doubt it. Henry had been very public in his support of Somerset already. It was as though York had bluffed in a game of stud with a busted flush, and the time had come to reveal the hidden cards. He had nowhere to go. And while we're on the topic, please tell me, world, why everyone plays Hold'em these days. Such a rubbish format. Let's get the world back to seven-card stud, the king of the poker game. Anyway, York had gambled. York had looked at his busted flush, looked at the assembled and unbroken ranks of lords looking at him, and he took the right decision. It was time to grovel. To grovel hard, to grovel long, and to grovel with utter conviction. Kneeling before the king, York and Courtney tried to explain themselves, otherwise known as grovelling, but not even Henry was convinced, and before you could say Jack Robinson, Courtney and York found themselves in London. You might consider that they got off lightly. They were forced to swore on the holiest of relics in St Paul's Cathedral in front of the assembled masses that they would do everything they were told by the king from now on, that York would never ever deploy armed force against the king. And can I go now, please? York slunk, slunk, back to Ludlow, tail firmly between his legs. Hopefully Cecily was duly sympathetic about what was not a good day at the orifice. Not a good day at all. But on the positive side, his head was still attached to his shoulders and actually, did he but know it, that was something of a win in the circumstances. Henry now has a period in the sunny uplands. He's in control. Or at least his pal Somerset was in control. Henry went on tour or at least the medieval royal equivalent, which was a royal legal procession from June 1452, delivering royal justice to the regions and demonstrating that, contrary to what you might have heard, the king was in the driving seat. There was a deal of salt rubbing going on, with malice aforethought. Henry's itinerary took him to Devon, spookily, where he made it quite clear that the Bonvilles were angels and Courtney's came first in a pile of poo competition. He also went to York, and, surprise, surprise, it took him to Ludlow, to Richard's Hood. Henry presided over courts in August 1452 that basically stuck it to York's affinity. It was a straightforward and rather brutal exercise in demonstration of power. I cannot imagine the hatred and fury that York would have felt as he watched his incompetent boss drag his good name through the mud on the back of his henchman, Somerset. And meanwhile, of course, we're in that happy little window between disasters in France, when Shrewsbury had got back into Bordeaux and things for a while looked rosy before Castillon happened. At Christmas 1452, despite having thrown Normandy into the toilet, Henry was looking and feeling good. He was being seen to be king, dispensing justice. York was grovelling and dribbling gently. The game was back on in France. At the palace at Greenwich, with his wife on his arm, Henry delivered a momentous change in the body politic. He knighted his two half-brothers, Edmund and Jasper Tudor creating them Earls of Richmond and Pembroke, respectively, and welcoming them back into the fold. 
by March 1453. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. York had been sacked as Lieutenant of Ireland, and the guy he'd tried to discipline, Wiltshire, had been substituted in his place. Courtney was in the clink, Bonville was promoted in Devon, and Somerset took over Old Hall's estates. Even Parliament was playing ball, voting the King subsidies, wonder of wonder. And then even more miraculous, and catastrophic from York's point of view, was the news that Margaret and Henry were to have a baby. Now, there were rumours that the baby owed very little to Margaret and Henry and an awful lot to Margaret and Somerset. There is, of course, no evidence either way. This is before the days of DNA testing. It always seemed to me a racing certainty that Margaret's son, for such the child shall be, was Somerset's. But maybe not. Who knows? Henry might well have been as in control and as confident and comfortable as he had ever or would ever be. So who knows? The accusations of adultery would rise like a tide a decade later, but then they were Yorkist claims and themselves hardly disinterested. And you have to feel some sympathy for Margaret in this, when the 14th century author Catherine de Pizan wrote that the greater a lady is, the more is her honour or dishonour celebrated throughout the country. She was surely right, and double standards were in operation good and proper. Nonetheless, it's a little spooky that there have been eight years without a result and a whiff of suspicion always hung over the little prince. But for York, the whole year had so far been like being slapped across the face with a wet haddock. Cecily Neville, Richard of York's wife, the Rose of Raby, as she was called, was however on much better terms with Margaret than was York. When she heard the Queen's news, she paid no heed to her husband, stomping around the castle, muttering furiously, and wrote a jolly nice letter of congratulation to Margaret. The blessed lady to whom you late prayed, in whom aboundeth plenteously mercy and grace, by whose meditation it pleaseth our Lord to fulfil your right honourable body of the most precious, most joyful and most comfortable earthly treasure that might come unto this land which is a little oily, it seems to me, but it seemed to go down well with the delighted Queen. In fact, Margaret stayed the night with Cecily on her way back from the shrine at Walsingham in Norfolk. Cecily was living in her little pad in Hetchin in Hertfordshire. I imagine York was at a different residence. Incidentally, Cecily had also just delivered another son, a little tiny squalling and helpless babe called Richard. A baby whose future lay in the world of car parking. Richard, you might be interested to know, was a difficult birth, a breech birth. Cecily, in fact, did her very best to knock the edges off her husband's disfavour. She wrote to Margaret doing her best to get hubby rehabilitated, wailing that her husband's fall from favour had made her replete with such immeasurable sorrow and heaviness as I doubt will not diminish and abridge my days as it does my worldly joy and comfort. It may be that Cecily's intervention did some good, but a bit unlikely. By this stage, the political scene in Westminster was poison for York. He had effectively been cast into the outer darkness. Beaufort and the Queen were wandering around Westminster, threatening political death to anyone who he dared to even speak to York. He was out. Persona non gratis. 
And this, in the end, is the problem with Henry and Margaret. They become associated with a faction with the Beaufort. It's not terminal at this point, but it's without doubt begun. By August 1453, Henry was already back on the road, doing his justice thing. It was becoming a habit, made him feel like the big man. Somerset was at his side. Shrewsbury, at this stage, was in Gascony, doing his thing to keep Gascony English. Henry was on top of the world. OK, there were a few clouds on the horizon. There was trouble brewing in the north between the Nevilles and the Perses. There was also trouble between Somerset and the young Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, a dispute over land that fully illustrates Henry's rubbishness. Henry had essentially granted Somerset land in South Wales that, oops, actually belonged to Warwick. Now, you might think that, as effectively the king's minister and an officer of state, Somerset would just acknowledge that this was a boo-boo and withdraw. After all, he wasn't short of a bob or two. But no, not a bit of it. Somerset was keen on the filthy lucre. So Warwick was maintaining an armed force in that county to stop him taking control. In July, Henry ordered him to vacate until he'd made a judgment between the two cases. Warwick already realised just how partial and plastic was Henry's judgment and showed absolutely no sign of doing anything of the sort. But look, hey, it wasn't the first dispute between two vastly rich and powerful men, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. Henry was basically looking good, and came to a place called Clarendon in Oxfordshire. You may well remember the name. It was a royal hunting lodge, and had been so since the time of Billy the Conk. It was then made into a palace by Henry II, where he formed the Constitutions of Clarendon for church reform. It's entirely possible that somewhere around the 7th of August, a messenger cantered into the palace, demanded to see the king, and when he came before him, told him his news. Shrewsbury had fallen in death and total defeat at Castillon. Bordeaux had fallen once more, and Henry would go down in history as the man who finally lost Eleanor's inheritance. In one of the next few days following, a deputation of lords, spiritual and temporal arrived, and came to Henry where he was having supper. It was odd. Henry was weirdly tired and unresponsive. None of the party could get any answer out of him at all. It became embarrassing. They even got to the point of praying. The Bishop of Winchester, though, was a man after my own heart. Clearly, the fact that the king was being weird was bad and all, but it had been several hours since his last pie. And if this went on much longer, he'd miss out on the evening pie as well. So, he suggested they all go and have supper, and maybe the king would be less grumpy later when they came back. So that's exactly what they did. But when they came back, it was no better. The king was completely supine, and not in a good way. Henry had taken leave of his senses, really taken leave of his senses. He had no concept of time, no memory, could not walk unaided, showed no recognition to anyone. He had completely withdrawn. Medieval England couldn't run without a king or someone to sub for him. Who now would resolve disputes? In whose name would decisions be made? Margaret and Somerset kept the whole thing secret for a while, but the truth would inevitably out. And meanwhile, disputes between magnates erupted into furious violence. 
The biggest and most significant conflict involved five families, the Nevilles, the Percys, the Hollands, the Cromwells and Lord Grave Rithin, but we're going to ignore him. It's complicated, OK? Let me give it a hack, since really it's a pretty good example of one of the things the Wars of Roses was all about. Greed, power, family. As we've discussed, the Percys had become accustomed to being almost kings in the north, especially along the Scottish border, until the Nevilles had accumulated land and influence to challenge and even surpass them. Henry, the second Earl of Northumberland, appears to have preferred George or to War War and apparently waved Richard Neville, the Earl of Salisbury, through and tucked him behind, letting Neville be boss in the playground, and the two rubbed along pretty well. But the same could not be said of their sons. The Percy side was awash with firebrands. Henry, the heir to the earldom of Northumberland, did his best, actually, to follow his father's line, but his brother Thomas, Lord Egremont, and Richard Percy had no such qualms. And on the Neville side, John Neville was just as bad. But hey, there had been pluses and minuses in the struggle for influence, such as 1452, for example, with the appointment of a Percy to be Bishop of Carlisle. So there was no immediate sign things were going to go bad. But then into the story, like a goat into a cage of lions, came an heiress. Oh dear. The heiress concerned was called Matilda, and she was the heiress of a chap called Ralph Cromwell, and she had some really nice tracts of land. Cromwell had been treasurer of England, but had fallen on hard political times and wanted an alliance with somebody powerful. And so the Nevilles, as the rising family, seemed a likely choice. And so, Julie, a marriage between Thomas Neville and Matilda was arranged. Well, why didn't he try the Percys, I hear you say? They're a powerful lot. Well, I have to tell you that the blood between Percy and Cromwell was not very good. Cromwell, a few years ago, as an official of the Crown, had confiscated property that had once belonged to the Percys, following the revolt of Hotspur against Henry IV. And to make matters worse, it was these very same properties that the Nevilles were going to get their grubby mitts on through this marriage. Now, violence between Egremont and John Neville had been getting worse recently. Egremont had kitted his followers out in a black and red livery and sanctioned attacks on Neville property. The worst probably being evicting tenants they didn't like the look of. Equally, John Neville had ridden into one village and threatened to burn the whole place down if they didn't say where Egremont was hiding. Seriously, they didn't get on. And in the process, both of them had built up big bands of followers. So when Matilda and Thomas's wedding was announced, Egremont went into grumpy bunny mode. The wedding feast was being held all week at the end of August, at Cromwell's trendy new pile at Tattershall in Lincolnshire. Trendy because it was built of brick, which was very new and most unusual. The wedding party, of course, then had to get back home from Tattershall to the Neville's place at Sheriff's Hutton in Yorkshire. And led by the magisterial Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, the wedding party had reached a place called Heworth Moor, which is now in the city of York. And there they were confronted by close to 1,000 angry young men, led by the young Henry Percy, dragged into the affair by his brother Egremont and Richard Percy. Egremont had raised the young men of York and his yeoman, tenant farmers from around Yorkshire, to teach the Nevilles a good lesson. 
And as it happens, the Nevilles weren't blithering idiots. And the wedding party was accompanied by just as many likely lads, and what followed was called the Battle of Heworth Moor. However, there was some restraint in the Wars of the Roses, so there was a lot of breaking of heads, pushing, shoving and the aggressive use of handbags, but little actual bloodshed. And the wedding party reached home without loss. But Salisbury now complained to the king. Salisbury, somewhere far away in his head, couldn't care less. Meanwhile, further south in a place called Ampthill, Cromwell was in trouble with another magnate, the volatile and violent Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter. Exeter swore that Ampthill should be his, for reasons really too dull to go into. Exeter didn't, in fact, have a leg to stand on, and Cromwell and indeed the Crown had told Exeter so in no uncertain terms. But Exeter wanted it, and surely that was enough. And Exeter was as poor as a church mouse, and so needed it. Well, when I say poor as a church mouse, poor as a church mouse that happens to be comparing itself with the 15 most privileged mice in the country. Poor if he was to hold his end up as a magnate, that kind of poor. Anyway, Exeter therefore simply went and took the manor from Cromwell. Cromwell duly sued Exeter, and the court sat at Westminster in judgment. The court sat in judgment at Westminster, surrounded by men in livery, snarling gently, since both Cromwell and Exeter bought massive retinues with them to the sitting. The court was understandably reluctant to draw any hard and fast conclusions, and anyway it was hard to think over the background noise of snarling, and so they referred it to King Henry. Now Henry, before his bout of madness, had already thrown Exeter and Cromwell in jail for a while over this. But now, after his madness, now where was everyone to go for a judgment? Now I do on occasion get accused of going into too much detail, and here is probably one very clear place where I have done so. But look, the point is that it gives you all an illustration of the background to life in England and the kind of political instability and violence that went on. And also, I hope it gives you an idea of the interconnectedness of things. So, please note two things from this. Firstly, two very large, powerful magnate families are at war, Neville and Percy. And without a king or anyone who can speak with the authority of a king, there is really no way to resolve the dispute. Both parties just ignore the judges, sending them letters telling them to stop. Secondly, the dispute and others like it are beginning to create factions and armed camps. Warwick, who is another Neville of course, is in dispute with Somerset now. So having supported the King and Somerset against York at Dartford, they might not be relied on to do so again. And meanwhile Exeter and Percy have now made common cause against Neville, joined by their joint opposition to Cromwell. And in fact, Exeter and Egremont specifically make a pact to work together in January 1454. Government went on, in fact, for a surprisingly long time under the fiction that the king was just temporarily indisposed. And I had this sort of image of Somerset desperately sneaking in at night to Henry's chambers and slapping wet fish across his cheeks to try and bring him round when no one was watching, desperate to avoid bringing York back into the frame. But the truth was that the only possible route was some kind of regency, agreed by the Great Council, because government business was grinding to a halt. By October, it was clear things couldn't go on this way. And so, 
A meeting of the Great Council was agreed for November. Unaccountably, Somerset and the Queen forgot to send York an invitation. Fancy. Fortunately, a bunch of five bishops did remember. I can only imagine Somerset's relief when he heard. And so next time it's showdown time. York will be back in town for the council. Before we go, however, I would scarcely be human if I did not finish with a shattering event that finally drew to a close a chapter in Western and indeed world history. I speak, of course, of the fall of Constantinople to Mehmet the Conqueror in 1453. I confess I don't have a lot of space for it, given I've got two podcasts already, I really can't start a third, but it was an event that drew a level of horror in inverse proportion to the amount of action that followed. Christendom no longer had the unity needed to mount a credible response. The Holy Roman Emperor no longer had the prestige and control that a Frederick Barbarossa had once had. Charles VII of France was rebuilding his country after a hundred years of war. England was entering its civil wars. The Genoese, Venetians and Aragonese individually lacked the resource. The Duke of Burgundy seemed the greatest hope, and while he'd made great, grand schemes and statements, in the end he did nothing. In a sense, the papacy shared something of the blame. For centuries it had been lambasting the Greeks as schismatics. So, within a few years, Greek and Balkan independence was a thing of the past. The Ottomans stood on the edge of Western Europe, and the Roman Empire had finally come to an end. Sic transit gloria mundi. Next time in the Wars of the Roses show, blood will be spilt. And you'll be delighted to hear that everything will get much worse as a result. Meanwhile, I have some donators to thank. Karen, Terry, Margaret, Mark, Joseph, Miguel, Liam, Michael, Unique Vintage Treasures, James, Donna, Robert, and especially my monthly donators, Simon, Jim, Kathy, Cool, Matthew, Brad and William. Thanks to everyone who's commented on the website, Facebook, iTunes, all that sort of thing, and of course to all of you who listen in. Good luck everyone, and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.